It's hot as hell. It is. We're in the middle of a heat wave. Yes. And I have fruit fly. What, what does that mean? You've been hanging out with a lot of gays? No. Well, I mean, you never have one. I have fruit flies. Uh, <laughs> because when you have one fruit fly, you have a million fruit flies. I have a million fruit flies in my house. From what? I have no idea. There's nothing left for them to eat. You don't just and- get fruit flies. Like, has there been garbage in there for a while? No, they were after a pineapple. <laughs> But I let the pineapple go, and there's still fruit flies. Is this what it's like to live in the suburbs? Is this what happens? People move to the suburbs, and they complain about benign shit. (laughs) I got fruit flies. (laughs) But I'm the pineapple because fruits flock to me. I didn't even plan that. I didn't even plan that. Get to the episode. Speed through this. You have been getting very (laughs) mad at my puns. I've been listening to the episodes, and you've been getting indignant about my punnery. You are. You've gotten very punny. We really love. Like, come on, that was really funny. Oh, absolutely. It is funny, but like, it's just it's a bit. You know, it's like the odd couple. They always had a bit. They actually love each other. You don't even think I'm funny. I think you're very funny. Look. Welcome to I Think Not, the podcast where Joey Taranto and me, Ellen Marsh, recap your favorite true crime TV shows. Every month, we bring you a new series and you get four episodes of that series. What have we done? Well, we did a little show called Disappeared for a really long time. (laughs) Then we did See No (laughs) Evil. But now we are on our fourth episode of City Confidential and we are going to move on to something else. And that's what we do here. gone for two weeks, so we're, we're getting back into the groove We got things. our sea legs back. Tell all of the DBs how your cruise was. It was amazing. It was literally the best free paid vacation I've ever had in my life. We went to amazing destinations. Everybody was really nice, and everybody was super gay. Yeah. But, like, I got to do my concert. The band was so good. They were all from the Philippines, and they learned their music in two hours. Of course they did. It was unreal. I worked on cruise ships for forever, and their bands... Their appreciation for music, they could sing anything. You could give them any song and they knew it. Yeah, I believe it. If you would like more broad sweeping statements about appreciation for music and regular tomfoolery, join us on the Patreon. That is where we bring you four bonus episodes a month. You can also get ad-free episodes. We can go live with our close friends, which we've done a couple times, and the close friends circle and all of that nonsense. And it is all there for you at patreon.com slash think not join us there there is tons of episodes for you to download and binge as soon as you join five dollars opens up a whole world of stupid butt jokes i'm not gonna (laughs) lie to you people you are nice people and i am not gonna lie to you should we get on with the episode let's get to the episode city confidential season seven episode five death Dorm. To be dispatched to a homicide at Gallaudet University is like being dispatched to a homicide at the White House. It just doesn't happen every day. We had a very violent crime scene. Uh, multiple stab wounds and cutting wounds. He was cut across his throat as well. The students were crying, scared. They wanted answers. Fingers started pointing and pointing and pointing and pointing. Everybody became a suspect there. And the whole scene is playing out again. Another murdered student. I thought, what is wrong with Gallaudet University? What is happening here? We are back 
in Washington, D.C. Why are we back in D.C.? Well, because D.C. has one of the highest murder rates in the country. And in 2000, 2001, it was really bad. And that's the year that we are in. Crime rates are high, but it's also, D.C. is a huge college town. We have a lot of friends that went to college in D.C. Like who? Jake, Nick, Caroline, Alan, oh. Brian. What if you were just naming names? Marge, <laughs> Abel, Stacy. <laughs> Karen. I was um, just naming people from the Bible. Rachel, <laughs> Abraham, <Leah>. Levi. <laughs> Cain, Abel. I just didn't want to mention their last names. Nick Lehan listens. Not your Nick. Your Nick doesn't listen, but Nick Lehan listens. <laughs> You're fucking terrible. I swear to God. Colleges like Georgetown, Howard, American, and Catholic are protected enclaves amid the urban chaos. One of the safest is Gallaudet University. Gallaudet University. Had you heard of this before? I hadn't. There is a school like this in Jersey City. I'm not going to lie. I'm a little emotional about this episode today for a lot of reasons. So I just want you to know, but tell them what this university specializes in. Well, Gallaudet University is the world's only university designed entirely to aid students who are deaf, hard of hearing, and deaf blind. Also, we see the campus. It is stunning. It is beautiful. It doesn't even look real. Honestly, I'm not making another Prague joke because Prague looks like it was just plopped there. It just looks plopped there. It is one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. It's pristine. It's very special. And it's a place where students feel very safe and represented and seen because It just evens out the playing field for everyone. I got to tell you, the thing that one of the professors said really, really got me. You walk on campus and immediately everything changes from a sound-based world on the outside to a visual base. Every freshman that I see coming onto campus, they are thrilled to be in an environment where Everything is accessible and the playing field is level. What an amazing place to go from a world that is not designed for you to a world where everybody is like you. It is so beautiful. Yeah, and you're not having to explain. You don't have to demonstrate. It's just, it is. Because yeah. Everyone gets it. They're all on the same page. Yeah. It's like if you like went to a school where everyone was like a gay Muppet. I want that for you. <laughs> I want you to feel seen and loved and respected. But in the fall of 2000, as Gallaudet students excitedly begin their new school year, they learn their tailor-made campus isn't the safe haven they thought it was. So it was about 9 p.m. and a freshman by the name of Joseph Mesa goes to his RA and says, I can't get a hold of my friend Eric. And the student's name was Eric Plunkett and he lived across the hall. And so the RA is like, "Okay, well, let me take this handy key I have to everybody's fucking room and let's go see what's going on with Eric. And when they go into the room, they find 19 year old Eric dead in a pool of blood. And the provost of the university, Jane, she's like, I got the call that there was a death. And when I found out it was a murder, I was in total shock. And that's not something you hear about a lot in general, about someone being murdered in their dorm room. I feel like dorms in the basic circumstances 
nothing ever really happens. Usually they have security. I mean, you have to like show your ID every yeah. time you go in and out of a dorm. But this place had security everywhere. Yeah. In fact, they had four gates that were all manned with security and only one of them was open at night. This place was very safe. I mean, they had all of their students are hard of hearing at minimum and most of them are deaf. So it has to be a higher safety standard than any other university. Exactly. Yeah. Well, this is when we meet retired detective Kyle Simiotti, who is like, this is the last place we expected to get a phone call about a homicide. So Detective Kyle arrives at the scene and the victim, Eric, he was murdered brutally. Yeah. There was major trauma to Eric's face, his head and his lower back. Now, I don't want to spoil anything for you. I don't like this detective. No. I don't like this detective at all. I I really, really tried to give him the benefit of all of my doubts. And then sometimes I'll say, don't make a snap decision, Ellen. Don't make a snap decision, Ellen. Give them a chance. Give them a chance. And then I get a certain point and I'm like, okay, now I want to go back and rewatch with the mindset that I'm in because I was right the whole time. Yeah. So, but this guy's like, this is a brutal murder. And I just think this is so fucking tacky because they're talking about the murder. And the first thing he mentions is how messy Eric's room was. Number one, no, it fucking wasn't. And number two, he's a fucking kid. Like, yeah. this is what we're like fucking focusing on. Let us be the funny guys. Yeah. Okay, sir. <laughs> Let us point out the Tara Grinstead of it all. How about you just actually solve the fucking crime? Agreed. Okay. All right. I'm at a nine right now. Yeah. I'm going to need to take it down. Yeah, it's a little early. Thank you. You, you, you got, got this. Yeah. <laughs> I believe in you. The attack was brutal. There's evidence of blunt force trauma to Eric's face, head, and lower back. But the lack of blood spatter tells Detective Simiotti that the killer tried to clean up. However, he left behind one crucial piece of evidence. The suspect did not go there armed, but found their weapon of choice while, the, while inside the dormitory, which was the leg of the chair. Detective Kyle knew that whoever did this tried to clean up the mess because there was no blood spatter anywhere. Also, the murder weapon was a leg from a chair in the dorm. That means that the murderer did not come with a weapon. He's thinking, okay, they had an argument and it had to be someone Eric knew. Because the way in which Eric was murdered, Detective Kyle used the term overkill. So it was obvious that it was a crime of passion. Yeah. Meanwhile, everyone has heard about this. Everyone is obviously scared, sad. They're scared for their friend. They're scared for themselves. They're crying. And the authorities need to bring in a translator to speak to everyone on campus so that they can speak to Joseph Mesa, who initially reported him missing. And obviously the RA, who was probably, you know, stoned in their room the whole time anyway. So they're like, this is a dorm full of people. Someone saw something. And they're like, all right, let's get everyone in the vans. Let's go down to the station. And they're like, uh, sir, it's 150 people and the van only holds six. They're like, we will take you six by six. <laughs> you know that part in Mean oh, Girls? I know, I know. We can't hold them past three. We will stay here till three. <laughs> I will keep you here all night. I don't care how long it takes. I will keep you here all night. We can't keep them past four. I will keep you here until four. Also, I mean, it was actually over 150 students. That is wild. And sadly, no one really knows anything. But Detective Kyle did use the information given to him to figure out how a killer could have potentially gained access into the dormitory. So here's the thing. Because people are either deaf or hard of hearing, they can't hear a knock at the door or the doorbell. So there's a light that's plugged in that flashes that alerts them to someone being at the door. But students told Detective Kyle 
that Eric often left his door open because he wanted to encourage visitors. I mean, I know you didn't go to college and that's not a dig. Normally it would be because, you know, you chose other paths in your life and you shouldn't feel bad that you don't have an education because you're a great (laughs) one. I'm just kidding. We ended up in the same place. (laughs) But a lot of people do that in dorms. It's kind of like an open door policy. Like if my door is open, come in and chat. A lot of people would like do their homework, leave their doors open. So that's actually like really common in a dorm. That's how you sort of meet people. And then if people's doors are closed, they're either not home or studying or sleeping or fucking or whatever. I was going to say, probably yeah. fucking. Or masturbating chronically. I didn't do that. Because you didn't go to school? Just never did because I love am a Christian Jesus. woman. <laughs> Here's the other thing. Eric's computer desk faced away from his door. So it wouldn't have been hard for someone to sneak up on him until they were literally that close to him. Guess what? We see a home movie of Eric giving us a tour of his dorm. If you've ever lived in a dorm, your dorm is five by five by five. Yeah. It is a tiny little room. And Detective fucking Moldy Sponge was like, uh, as a police officer, I never turn my back to a door. Do you, Kyle? You never turn your back to a fucking door He's a fucking kid. He's at college. Shut the fuck up. That sounded so victim blamey. We're talking about a deaf kid who's at a school with other deaf kids, and he is feeling safe and comfortable. You think he's worried about someone sneaking up behind him? Yeah, he's like, Mom, we need to move this configuration. I can't have my back to the door in my tiny corner little dorm. And here's the other thing. Whatever sounds were coming out of Eric's dorm as he was being murdered, no one would have heard them. When they said that, That hit me. Yeah. No one would have known. No one could help because they didn't know. This this sweet angel. While forensics scour the crime scene, news of the murder travels like a bolt of lightning across campus. The students were crying, scared. They wanted answers. People were asking them, what should I do? Will it happen to me? What's next? Who's going to solve it? Who's investigating? The next day, the news picks up the story and all of D.C. is like an absolute shock because they were like, really, at this school? Sending your kids off to college is scary enough. I mean, as a parent, you are the CEO of this tiny human for 18 years. And then, you know, they always say like, the days are long, but the years fly by. And then you go and you say, you're a human that can live on your right. own. You're only 18. When you see 18-year-olds, aren't you like you are an embryo? You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like at any school, you just drop off your kid and you're like, great, this is the first day of the rest of your life. And these kids have lived in a world of silence or damn near it their whole lives. Right. And then they get to be with thousands of other kids. Like, it's a safe haven. It is. No, I get it. It's like that is... The place where you're supposed to be safe, you drop your baby at this institution and they're supposed to have locks and guards and RAs and codes and keys. And they're supposed to keep your most precious things safe. Yeah. So, no, it doesn't sound right. It's the same thing when we send our kids to school now and what kids face in schools in terms of mass shootings. It's all just so scary. It is. Well, Parents of students that attended this school, they showed up and a lot of parents were withdrawing their kids. Rightfully so. Yeah, they were terrified. And now police are looking into the security systems in the school. And here's the thing. The campus is huge. It's beautiful. And it's gated. It's kind of a fortress. Yeah. However, right outside of the gates, the neighborhood is rough. Everything from drugs to murder to theft, you name it, it's there. So as we said before, they have the four gated entrances. Three are absolutely closed. 
And one is left open after dark. And that one has... The night guard. Which I do too, because I grind my teeth at night. And a lot of times the grinding, it can it's caused me a little bit of TMJ. You are too twisted for color TV. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong night guard, Yellen. Wrong night guard. Sorry. So the other flaw they realized in the system was all of the card keys open up all of the dorms and like the CAF and the library. And other dormitories. And other dorms. Usually they're like, oh, you live in a dorm? Cool. Your card key only works at a dorm. No, no, no. It opens all the dorms. So why even have a card key at all? Didn't that seem like so odd to you? It was very odd to me. And also I'm like, that is a huge problem. That is a huge breach of security. So they check the perimeter to see if there's any breaches. There's none. They're 10 foot high fences. So now the campus is locked down and visitors are no. Cameras are installed. Three of those four gates are closed, period. The main gate is the only way in and out. And it was heavily guarded. So they're like, did Eric have any enemies? Let's figure that out. So his mom, Kathleen, and his stepdad, Chris, are a wreck. And Chris is here. And he's basically like, Kathleen was inconsolable. Yeah. She kept saying, I took. I know. How could you not be? I took my baby to college and he's never coming home. It is it is just the root of every parent's fear because you have to let them spread their wings. But like, what happens if they don't return to the nest? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And Kathleen is also here and tells us just how sweet he was. He had congenital rubella and just kind of explained what his life was like being deaf. And he became an excellent communicator at a very young age. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to become a therapist. He wanted to help people and he enjoyed helping people. He was very excited about going to this university. And the wild part of this is he'd only been there for two weeks when he was murdered. Yeah. And they show the home video of him getting his acceptance. Yeah. And she was so worried, naturally. And she's like, I remember him saying, I'm not going to get through this episode. You got to. (laughs) We're under contract. (laughs) Don't worry, Mom. I'll be fine. Yeah. She's like, because I was so worried about him. And also, Eric was part of the LGBTQ. Twist. Twist. Yeah. Because what happened was Detective Kyle has no person of interest No motives. And he has to go back to the campus and speak with Eric's friends. And the friends were like, well, he was gay, openly gay and very proud to be gay. And so they're wondering now, wait wait a minute, is this a hate crime? Yeah. Students had conveyed to me that Eric was in a relationship with another young man on campus who was also a student whose name was Thomas Minch. Thomas Minch was an excellent student. He had a presidential scholarship, which put him at the top of his class. One of the most prepared and intelligent students at Gallaudet University. And so they learned that Eric was dating someone, another student at Gallaudet named Thomas Minch. And Thomas was a great student. He was attending the school on a presidential scholarship. I mean, this man was brilliant at, at the top of his class. And Thomas Minch is here to tell his side of the story. I'm sorry. I feel like I can say this because this is a safe space. I love watching people sign. Yeah. It is so fascinating. So for those of you who don't know, when we're in a Broadway show, a couple times a year, they will do a signing performance. Well, they'll have two people signing the show. And I always look in the corner of my eye. Yeah. Because it's so fascinating. 
And Thomas was signing his entire interview, and it was just so theatrical and beautiful. Yeah. I just... It's like a dance. It really is. I just love watching it. So I was riveted by his interview. Speaking of sign language dances, Mm -hmm. did I ever tell you that we had a sign team at my church growing up? And all the ladies of the church would get up there, and they would do a choreographed sign dance to something like Our God is an Awesome God or Love in Any Language by Sandy Patty. And it occurred to me one day that people would sign literally during praise and worship. We didn't have a single (laughs) deaf person in our church. It's about inclusivity, Joseph. Also, those motherfuckers could have been signing anything. And no one would have known. There was no one there to keep us accountable because people sort of knew the sign for our God is an awesome God. I could have been up there signing the devil's going to fuck you in the ass. And no one would have known. It's like that woman who got caught fake signing. When they said, and he was arrested, and she went. (laughs) I was like, y'all should have known right then and there. How did she get that job? She bamboozled him. Oh, they were like, we don't know. I guess that looks legit. I mean, listen, look at half of Congress. uh, You could ask that question about half of Congress. Simeone calls in a couple sign language interpreters. And then he asks Mitch to meet him down at Metro PD headquarters for a conversation. Once I arrived to the police station, they um, took me to the interrogation room. It was constant barrage of questioning, repeating the same questions three and four times. So Thomas is here talking about the day he was interrogated. And he was like, I mean... They kept asking me the same questions over and over, and I kept giving them the same answers. Like, he did see Eric the day that Eric passed. Yeah. So it turns out Thomas came from a very religious background, Mm -hmm. right? And he says, I absolutely was not dating Eric at the time. I didn't identify as gay at the time. So they didn't really clarify. I I don't know if they were trying to say that he was in the closet at the time and that he came out later. I'm unsure. It seemed from what he was saying that he now lives his life as a gay man. I don't want to put that out there, but he said at the time I wasn't gay. So like you said, Thomas admitted to being in Eric's dorm that day. Thomas was checking out a new poster that Eric had bought and Thomas was admiring it when Eric came behind him and started massaging his shoulders And Thomas did not like that. It actually made him very angry. And Thomas told the detective in that moment, I am not gay. I'm not dating Eric. We are friends. I've never been gay. I want to marry a woman and have a house. Obviously, whatever he was going through, his religious background and being in the closet was coming out at the time. And so Detective Kyle says, okay, I know you're very religious. Do you mind if we pray? And Thomas agrees. Let's pray. And they're saying the Lord's Prayer, which he called the Our Father. Do you call it Our Father? Mm-hmm. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I thought it was just called the Lord's Prayer. Is that something thy different? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespassers as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Amen. Our Father. Okay. Look at we prayed on this podcast. The tricked. Isn't that wild? I don't even know that I know that. Yeah. Well, I also know all the lyrics to Waterfalls by TLC. Should we do that too? <laughs> Just to even it out. <laughs> so anyway, they're praying. Detective Kyle forgets the words halfway through. And all of a sudden, Thomas stops and he's upset. And he says to the detective, quote unquote, what's going to happen to me if I tell you what I did? And Detective Kyle says, Just talk to me. And Thomas says, I did it. But this is so confusing because that's not actually what happened. Yeah. 
Because Thomas explained to us that he was getting sort of flustered in the interrogation or in the interview, rather. And he sort of put his hands up like to stop. Like imagine someone holding like two hands, like a high five, like stop, like almost like, wait, I need to start over. And Detective Dipstick was like, wait, did you push him? And Thomas's energy was changing. The detective was like, his energy was getting really indignant. Thomas was confused. He was trying to communicate through through an interpreter. interpreter, And he said, I wanted to make sure exactly what I was saying is exactly what the interpreter was saying, because I am in an interrogation room right now. And he was like, I never hurt Eric. I never touched him. I never did anything. I didn't confess. And detective, you have a messy room, was like, oh, he did it. Cuffs on him. Meanwhile, this death child is like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. yeah. And so he literally did that. Detective Kyle was like, oh, we have your confession. I'm arresting you. And then it was on the news that Thomas and Eric had been in a relationship, uh, had a disagreement, which led to a physical fight. There's a ton of the confusion. The media went wild. They were like, gay death students yeah. have rage-filled killing spree. Like, whoa, whoa. And everyone was like, great, case closed, solve. Like, oh, hell no. This onion has not even begun to get peeled. Yeah. And so a couple days later, Detective Kyle is walking into the U.S. attorney's office when he gets a call from his lieutenant telling him that they're getting ready to no paper the case. No paper is prosecutor speak for no charges will be filed. That means the U.S. attorney assigned to the case doesn't believe Minch's confession will hold up in court. So now the U.S. assistant attorney is here and he says the only evidence we had was what Thomas Minch confessed to. But Thomas just said that maybe he shoved Eric. He didn't say he bludgeoned him to death. Also, you're talking about someone who is using an interpreter. He is speaking through American Sign Language. There are so many chains of things that can go wrong in that. So they were like, no, we don't have enough to prosecute. That's what an attorney general does. They want to win their case, right? Yeah, of course. They want a bad guy to go to jail. If they think that that doesn't hold water, they're not going to waste the time and resources trying to prosecute someone that they don't think is going to hold up in court. Yeah. But Detective Dipfuck was like, yep, yep, the deaf kid did it. What? Yeah, it's really actually pretty wild because Detective Kyle was convinced that they just released a murderer. Yeah. So he has a meeting with his lieutenant and says, you know, I have bias. I believe that Thomas Minch was the person who murdered Eric. And I don't think I can have an open mind in this case. I want you to remove me from the case. And they did. I don't think that that's what I don't think that's what happened either. I actually can't believe this guy actually went on City Confidential. Yeah. Because he looks like a dirty rag stuck in the corner of your fucking garage. And everything he says, I got a bad vibe from him. I swear to you, Joey. And I try. I was like, calm your tits. Hakuna your tatas. Like, everybody calm down. But I was fucking right. Because why did he agree to go on the show? Well, here's what I want to say. We obviously don't have proof of this. So please don't sue us. This is speculation. Maybe speculation will get you sued too. I don't know. I don't know. I have a feeling that he was removed from the case. Well, I have a bigger feeling and I'm going to say something. I'll tell you why later. I'm pretty sure we will not get sued for saying that. I'll say that at the end of the episode. Okay. But he was like, listen, he confessed. Did you just like release a killer 
And he is so sure of himself. Bye. Don't come back on my TV. Don't come back for yeah. the rest of the episode. Well, they assemble a new team. You're canceled mid-season. Yeah. Thank you very much. They assemble a new team. There's obviously a very heavy <laughs> police. Joey's like, they assemble a new team. It's like you're splitting me and him up. Okay, go to your corners. Play nice. Get your water. Hose her down. <laughs> There's a very heavy police presence on the campus. There's a memorial made in Eric's honor in front of his room. And there was a candlelight vigil that was held. Here's the thing. Everyone believes that Thomas Munch did it. There was a a memorial poster that even Thomas had signed, and they cut Thomas's signature out of it. It's so awful. The students are scared and traumatized, which is my drag name. Please welcome (laughs) to the stage, scared and traumatized. (laughs) Better than sad and lonely. But... (laughs) 28. 28. But I also think that the provost was like, for Thomas's safety, we decided to suspend him. I was like, no, you think he did it. Yeah. You sent him home to New Hampshire. He was completely embarrassed. He was shamed. He was shunned. And you participated in that. He was guilty until proven innocent. I mean, I agree with you, but I do think that part of it, too, is is it would have been very disruptive to have the suspect of the murder case, you know, roaming the halls. I mean, everybody already felt unsafe. But yes, I totally agree with you. I mean, he wasn't a suspect. Well, right. He was a suspect in their eyes, but he wasn't actually a suspect. He wasn't? No, he might have been a person of interest, but he wasn't named a suspect. Oh, interesting. You could be a person of interest or someone that they're keeping their eye on or they can suspect him, but he wasn't an official suspect. Got it. Well, Thomas talks about how hellish it was. It was traumatic. And everyone assumed he was guilty. He, He ended up going back home to New Hampshire. Weeks pass, then months. With no new developments in the case, Gallaudet remains on edge. I don't really have a lot of information to share except to say that we are coping with the situation as best we can. Um, Maintaining and ensuring strong safety for students here. Weeks pass, then months, nothing. No leads, no suspects. And folks were worried that no one was ever going to be charged for this crime. And everyone goes home for Christmas break. Christmas break could not come fast enough. Time heals everything, right? So everyone goes home to winter break. They recoup, they rest, they come back. And they're kind of ready to get on with their lives, not in a disrespectful way. They need some normalcy. Yeah. They want to get back to the routine. And so on February 2nd, 2001, four months after Eric's murder, students have just returned to classes. And around 2 a.m., the provost of the university, Jane Fernandez, gets a call informing her that Another student has been found murdered in their dorm. What? The victim was Ben Varner. He was 19. He was found face up in a pool of blood. And so the way they found him was a fire alarm went off. Obviously, it's a different kind of fire alarm at that school. And they swept the dorms to make sure everyone was out. And that's when they found Ben. And so they're thinking... The nightmare is not over. I cannot believe that this is happening. The MPD assigns veteran homicide detective Pamela Reed to the case. We had a very violent crime scene. His dorm was not ransacked, but obviously there was a struggle. There was blood patterns all up walls, all over the floor. Examining the body, it was a knife or a sharp object, multiple stab wounds and cutting wounds. And so a new detective is assigned to the case, and her name is Pamela Reed. I'm not totally convinced that Pam is not drunk. 
Yeah. She seems a little drunk. She also might be related to the Long Island medium. I'm... <laughs> In some way, maybe a distant, like a, a, a cousin removed. Don't bring up the Long Island medium. You know she traumatized me when she came to Kinky Boots. I don't remember this story. Oh, really? No. What? She came to Kinky Boots. She came backstage and she goes, we're talking and she looks up into the booth, the side booth, and she goes, so a, a guy died here a couple years ago, a young guy, very young. And we were like, yes. How do you know that? She goes, He's looking at me right there. I see him in the box. The guy from the fire pump room? The guy from the fire. There was a young man who had overdosed at work. Poor baby was battling an addiction and he overdosed in the boiler room and died. Did we ever tell that story about Daniel Radcliffe? And Daniel Radcliffe refused to go on and they wanted to keep the show going. And Daniel was like, I was friends with that guy. We're not doing the show tonight out of respect for that guy and his family because, you know, everybody backstage is every. Yeah, we're all all family. Yeah. So do you remember what Daniel Radcliffe said? No. So this is like Broadway urban legend. I was in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert at the time. And How to Succeed in Business was in the Hirschfeld Theater, which is where Joey and I did Kinky Boots. We were in the theater after. But this story like lives on on Broadway forever. So basically... The producers were like, well, we're going to go on. And Daniel goes, nope, I pay everyone's salary tonight. We go home. Yeah. That show didn't go on because of Daniel Radcliffe and Daniel Radcliffe only. All those guys backstage, if you mention the name Daniel Radcliffe, they'll literally grab their hearts. Remember? Yeah. Remember when Daniel came to one of our barbecues Mm -hmm. at Backstage at Kinky Boots? Because it was the same theater. When she said, I see him right there. He's looking at me. And I was like, get out of this theater. (laughs) Get out of this theater. It scared the shit out of me. That is really, really scary. But Pamela Reed uh, is not cousins with her. But she is assigned to this case. And Ben was not killed in the same way that Eric was killed. Ben was actually stabbed. And there had clearly been a struggle. Ben was a big dude. Mm -hmm. Tall guy. And there was blood spatter everywhere. His throat had been cut as well. It was a horrific scene. And going down the hallway of the dorm, they found blood drops as well as a very faint but present outline of a bloody shoe print. Yep. And so a lot of times the perp gets injured or cut in some way. So they're like, we don't know if that's victim's blood, but I'll bet you going down the hall, that's the perp's blood. And that trail of blood led down four flights of stairs out a back door. Yeah. The MPD brings in the FBI. They offered to lend assistance with all their their technicians, blood pattern experts, etc. And we were going to take advantage of it. Two murders in four months. How did they get past the guards, the cameras? So many questions. So they have to call on the FBI. That's right. And one woman from the FBI specializes in shoe prints. And she sprays something on that shoe print. I don't know what it was, but it becomes a very clear shoe print. I'm fascinated by this stuff. There are all kinds of jobs. Yeah. What do you do? What do you do? I specialize in shoe prints for the FBI. Yeah. Bloody, muddy, cruddy, whatever the shoe print, I will tell you the shoe, the make, the model, the size, call me. And she call did me. it. I'm going to give you a shoe. You got a, you got a print? I'm going to figure it out. She did it because this was a size 11 Nike Air Max sneaker. So they were like, basically, you find the match, you find the killer. But I thought this was weird because they still needed a warrant to go into his dorm room. To go into all the dorm rooms. Maybe that was it because... That's what they said. They could go into our dorm rooms whenever they wanted to. If they thought you had drugs at our school, they could go into your dorm room. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's like your kids, but you still have rights. I have questions about that. Weed lawyer Elizabeth, weigh in. It was hard to believe 
that it couldn't be the same person who had killed Eric Plunkett. Same dorm, same kinds of targets, and also same type of savage killing. It's the same dorm. It was a dorm called Cogswell Hall. And this guy was like, same target. I mean, it was a guy and a deaf person, I guess. And then he was like, same type of murder. I was like, no, it wasn't. One was blunt force trauma. One was stabbing. And so they're like, oh, my God, where is Thomas Mench? He's at it again. So let's go find him in New Hampshire. But get this. At the time of Ben's murder, Thomas Mench was actually in D.C. Thomas Minch was required by the FBI to come in and turn over samples of his DNA. So the same day he arrived in Washington, D.C. was the same day that Ben was murdered. So the FBI shows up in New Hampshire to speak with Thomas and asks him for an alibi. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? An alibi? What? What do you even mean? I don't even go to that school. And they inform him of the second murder. And Thomas is like, I could not believe it. Mm -hmm. But guess what? Thomas was with his parents in D.C. And they had all the evidence they needed to prove there was no way he could have committed that murder. And so Ben Varner was from Texas and he loved geography, just like you, honey. Also a freshman. And there was a picture of his parents and his parents, you know, gave a press conference and everything. And I just kept thinking of a parent going in and emptying out their kid's dorm. Yeah. Because it's like your first little space you live in as a little tiny human, you know? It's so exciting. And I just was thinking of them packing it up. Yeah. So Detective Reed does something that Detective Dum Dum didn't do. She goes through Ben's dorm. And something else that Detective Peanut Butter Brain didn't do, she goes through Ben's finances. After five days of sniffing around, MPD's financial fraud team catches a whiff of potential suspicious activity in Ben's bank account. A $650 check had been cashed on Friday, February 2nd, the day after Ben was murdered. And it was a check made out to Joseph Mesa. Anyone remember that name? Why do we know that name? That's because Joseph Mesa was the student who originally reported Eric Plunkett missing to the RA. And who is Joseph Mesa? He is a 20-year-old deaf student, also a freshman from Guam. And they were like, why do you have this check from Ben? And he's like, I don't. They're like, no, no, you wrote a check from Ben's checkbook to yourself. And he's like, what do you mean? No, I didn't. Yep. And Detective Pamela Reed is like, in her mind, she's just thinking, I got a shoe print. Yeah. I got a shoe print. And if I find that shoe in your dorm... You are fucked. Yeah. And she gets a search warrant immediately. She has the evidence she needs. And two hours later, they are in Joseph's dorm. And you know what they find? A pair of size 11 Nike Air Max sneakers. There was even a drop of blood on the top of that sneaker. Also, the bottom of that shoe had a very distinctive pattern design. So the shoe print is undeniable. And Detective Reed was like, I have been staring at this shoe print so long, I could etch it on a fucking etch-a-sketch. I know what the bottom of that shoe looks like, and it's those. It's those shoes right there. Hand me those shoes, Joseph. What are those? Oh, this. That's what it fucking is. And Detective Pamela sits down with Joseph again, and he knew. He knew he was caught. He confessed to the murder. I did not see this coming. No. I did not see this coming. And they they say he showed very little remorse. He was very matter of fact. Very mundane, very uneventful. 
And a very lengthy confession, not in the episode. The confession was four hours. Very detailed. And at the very end, he says, oh, by the way, you should know I killed Eric Plunkett, too. It was a student. It was a friend. It was a dorm mate. It was a fellow deaf person. Yep. It was almost impossible to comprehend that it was someone in our own deaf community who had committed murder. It's not something we ever thought uh, was possible. That shook us. It shook us on a deep level. It was very traumatic for us to grasp. On May 3rd, 2002, Joseph Mesa is put on trial, and he claims temporary insanity, which is a very, very hard thing to prove. He says... Believe me, I've tried. (laughs) He says... I saw a vision of black gloved hands telling me in sign language to kill his classmates. And the DA who questioned him on the stand asked him, really? So did those black gloved hands also tell you to cash that check? Mm -hmm. And Joseph couldn't answer. Yeah. Were they magic beans? (laughs) Were they the same things that gave Jack his beanstalk beans? (laughs) Like it was... Ridiculous. It was fucking... It's an insult. It is actually an insult because there are people that actually need that plea. People who are not well. And there is so much evidence that he was faking this plea. They found a letter that he wrote to his girlfriend. He's like, well, I'm going to give this a try. And he got in touch with some family in Guam to destroy evidence. Well, on May 21st, 2002, Joseph is found guilty and sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. I didn't like that they charged both of them together. Hmm. They didn't each get their own trial. I don't know. That way my heart hurt for the families a little bit. Yeah. They charged both of them together. I mean, definitely justice was served, but I understand what you're saying. On May 21st, 2002, Joseph Mesa is found guilty and sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. The judge considers the 20-year-old a highly dangerous threat to anyone around him, including other inmates. So Mesa is shipped off to a maximum security prison. And Joseph Mesa was sent to a maximum security prison. But the question is why? Why? Why would he do this? So something not in the episode, Eric Plunkett had cerebral palsy. And Joseph said he knew that he was too weak to fight back. And he knew Eric's habits and he knew where he was. So he pinpointed Eric. Also, he knew that Eric had an open door policy, that he kept his door open. And he had practiced sneaking up on him so that he knew he could. And he told the cops that he snuck up on Eric and put him in a chokehold until he was on the ground, and then he killed him. Which is wild, because they didn't talk about any kind of asphyxiation. Right. They said that he died from blunt force trauma, and in his confession, he said he choked him until he wasn't moving. Yeah. So that's very, very interesting. And also, he stole his debit card. Joseph stole his debit card and used it. And if they had checked his financial records, they would know. They would know that there was a theft involved. Yeah. And so... On that, Detective Stupid Brains did not run a background check on Joseph Mesa. I personally, and nobody podcaster, hold that fucking detective personally responsible for the murder of Ben because if he had not already signed, sealed, and delivered Thomas Mensch 
and case closed it and done one little lick of research that I do in an average fucking day when I'm trying to stalk someone who all of a sudden has changed their status on their Facebook to single. Oh, God. Put in that much fucking effort, he would have known not only did Joseph Mesa have misdemeanors for theft, for petty theft, he had stolen some kids' debit cards. If he had looked for five seconds into the person who originally said Eric was missing and not in the episode, he went to the RA and said, there's a funny smell coming from Eric's room. He didn't say I haven't heard from Eric all day. And the weird thing is nobody else smelled the smell. The RA was like, what smell are you talking about? Oh, well, okay. No, he wanted him to get caught because he wanted to get like through it faster. I hold that detective personally responsible for the murder of Ben. More on that is, is that Joseph said, well, I was thinking of murdering my roommate, my Mm -hmm. dorm roommate, but I thought that might look too suspicious. So I stole his credit card because he had a girlfriend and Christmas break happened. He ran out of money and he heard about Ben. Ben was on the fourth floor, lived by himself. And he also knew that Ben came from money. So he's like, Ben is a bigger dude than me. I can't just attack him the way I did Eric. So I'll bring a knife with me this time. They had a full on fight. He stabbed Ben 17 times, 17 times. But Ben fought really hard. Mm -hmm. And then he panicked because once he killed him, he panicked and ran. And the next day when he was like, well, there's no wind of this yet. He went back to the scene of the crime because he had left the knife behind and something else. I don't remember what it was. But he grabbed those and left, but he didn't clean it up. Yeah. Also, if Detective Potato Salad Brain had done one lick of investigating, he would have known that Joseph stole Eric's wallet. They didn't inventory Eric's dorm room. They didn't inventory the Keystone Coppery of it all. Wow. Joseph stole Eric's wallet. They would have known if they would have done one second of research, but they were like, no, it's the gay kid. Open, shut. Right. Gay pride is over and ruin fucking Thomas Mensch's young life. Right. Oh, well, what I wanted to say was the reason we won't get sued is the police chief admitted to the shortcomings of the investigation and they made a statement that they fucked up and that they would do better. Yeah, if you would have done better, you would have saved Ben's life. Wow. Because Joseph remained free and unpursued because you didn't do your fucking job. Right. You absolutely did not do the base level of investigation that you and I and every armchair expert listening would have done. Well, right. Especially because how many times have we seen it where someone was the witness or the only witness or maybe one of a handful of witnesses? If you're a witness at the scene of a murder, you are a suspect automatically. Look at that young guy. The last time we were in D.C. on City Confidential, the assistant manager of that restaurant, that man was distraught. But that investigator didn't care. He was was like, like, I have to ask you these questions and I have to do a background check on you. He didn't do that. So absolutely. This is really sad. And the truth is, is that Gallaudet University is forever changed. They now know that their school isn't safe from everything. And they take many precautions to protect the faculty and the students there. It's a really, really beautiful place, and I'm really sorry that it has this stain on its history. It's really, really sad. Say something funny. Well, we've learned lots of things on this episode today, Yellen. And one of the things we learned is Daniel Radcliffe 
he's a down bitch. He's a graduate of yeah. DB University. In fact, I hear that he is resurrecting the Harry Potter series and he's starring in a new movie called Harry Potter and the Chamber of Don't Fuck With Me. I graduated from DB University with honors and I've got a ton of DBs who'll clean up the mess behind me if you don't do what I say. <laughs> is that going straight to DVD? That sounds great. <laughs> might need some workshopping. <laughs> Make it now. Why are you doing this? Thank you, down bitches. That is our last episode of City Confidential. We will be moving on to our new episode. You are going to have to follow us on social media to see what show we are covering next. And you can do so by finding us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at I Think Not Pod. You can also find us on our personal Instagrams at Ellen Marsh. That is Ellen with a Y. And me at It's Joey Taranto. And join our Facebook group. It's called the I Think Not Pod Facebook Discussion Group. Did I say that right? Yeah, and we're in there all the time. And lots of Obsessed Fest chat happening. Lots of live show chat happening. We will meet you there. We love being tagged in all of your posts. We thank you so much for sharing with your online community how much you love the podcast. We see it. We love it. We appreciate it. We appreciate you. And don't forget to sign up for the Patreon. $5 gets you $500,000 million hours of That is not accurate. That is comedy. not accurate. <laughs> well, we love you so much, and I love you yelling. I Marsh. love you, Joey. Love you now, bitches. Love you, Davies. Bye. Yeah, it's good. Same with me and butt stuff. I don't plan it. I just let it happen. <laughs> they also check the perimeter because they have 10-foot fences. The what? The parameter. Sorry. What did I say? Well, you said it wrong again. Perimeter. There it is. Okay. Parameter. <laughs> perimeter. Parameter. <laughs> Potameter. Palameter. <laughs> the perimeter. We meet Jane Fernandez, who is the provost at Gallaudet. Did you look up what provost I is? I sure did. Tell the baby. It's basically, it's basically the fancy uh, term for dean of students. It's a little bit higher than a dean. It's a fancy term for a little bit higher than a dean of students. Yeah. It's like how I'm the provost of you. Ooh. I'm not really the boss, but I just like to like sass you around a lot, you know? <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to use you like a puppet. I'm just going <laughs> to shove my whole arm up your ass, and I'm just going <laughs> to... Why am I a turkey? Because <laughs> that's what I sound like to you, a turkey. What does the provost say? What did she say? What did you say that she was going to say? The provost is here and you the asked. The provost is here and she just says how, um, she's here. <laughs> 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 <laughs>